One of the default things that I think we naturally do when we are reading or studying the scripture is uh, look for the immediately practical application of a text. There's the danger, I think, that in our rush to make the scripture relevant for today, we might be tempted to make some sort of application before we've understood what is going on in the text. And that happened to me with this text. Uh, When I first knew some weeks ago that I was going to be preaching from this particular passage of scripture, my assumption was already that the point of this passage, and therefore the point of the sermon, would be something like, if we know how to use the Bible, we can defeat temptation just like Jesus did. That gives us something to do right away, doesn't it? We leave the service feeling like, I need to read the Bible more. Now, that would be a true and a legitimate application of this passage. Uh, In light of Kevin's testimony a couple of weeks ago, I remember the turning point in my own life in seeking to cultivate purity of mind, that the turning point came when I very intentionally embarked on a period of uh, ingesting, in my case, the book of Romans. And the scripture literally changed my life, changed how I think. And so the reality that Scripture is the most powerful weapon in overcoming temptation is true. And it is a right application of this passage. But as a preaching professor said to me once, he said, it's a point, but it's not the point. What is the point of this passage? Well, in this account of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, there's a lot more going on here. This text is not just a call to read the scripture more, not just a case study on how we can face temptation and gain the victory. This is a declaration of the gospel. And Jesus is here not only as an example of how to face temptation, but he is our representative. He is our champion. He is, in fact, doing battle for us in this passage and gaining victory for us. This is a tremendous passage. And I have to say at the outset, I'm indebted to a man named David Jackman of the Proclamation Trust, who reminded me to explore some of the Old Testament connections of this passage. And we're going to see those as we move through this text. Now, at the heart of this passage is the reality that Jesus is the Son of God. Okay, our passage here in chapter 4 picks up the thread of the narrative from the end of chapter 3 in the account of Jesus' baptism where the heavens were opened, we read, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And it's with that affirmation ringing in his ears and his heart that Jesus, after coming through the waters of baptism and led by the Holy Spirit, goes into the wilderness. And so when Jesus is tempted there, he is tempted as the Son of God. The first thing Satan says to him, verse 3, if you are the Son of God, and again in verse 9, if you are the Son of God. Now Satan doesn't doubt Jesus' sonship, saying, oh yeah, prove it to me by doing these things. Nor is he trying to get Jesus to doubt his sonship. What Satan is doing is saying something like, okay, if you're the son of God, let's see what kind of son you're going to be. So Jesus' divine sonship is the context or the backdrop against which these temptations are set. Now, why does this matter? Jesus is about to launch his public ministry 
in which he will bring and proclaim the kingdom of God. He will reveal God. He will reveal God's truth. He will reveal God's very character. And if he's going to be the revelation of God, he must be perfect. Then in a few years, Jesus will go to the cross. There he will give his life as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. And if he is going to be the sinless, unblemished sacrifice for sin, then he must live a life of perfect obedience to God his Father. He cannot be the substitutionary sacrifice for our sins if he has his own sins to worry about. No, he must be perfect. He must stand where everyone else has fallen. And if Jesus fails in temptation, there is no gospel. There is no forgiveness. There is no hope. We are not here this morning. Satan carries the day. But how can it be known if Jesus will fail or not fail? He must be tested. And he has to do better in his testing than Israel did. You remember what God said about Israel when he sent Moses to Pharaoh when Israel was in slavery in Egypt? God said this to Moses in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. You shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And what did God do at that time? He rescued Israel, brought them through the waters of the Red Sea and into the wilderness, and he tested them. There they would learn what it means to be the children of God, what it means to live in right obedience to God. But they failed. Miserably, they failed. And Jesus has this experience of Israel in view during his own temptation. For when he quotes the scripture three times to Satan, all of his references go back to specific instances of Israel in the wilderness. See, Jesus is like the new Israel. It would take a lot more time than I have this morning to show in detail, but imperfect Israel in the Old Testament is a picture of perfect Jesus and his church in the new. The vine was a prophetic symbol for Israel. Jesus said, I am the true vine. God in Isaiah called Israel my servant, but spoke of a coming servant who would do God's will and do it perfectly. Matthew sees in Israel's exodus from Egypt a picture of Jesus' own departure from Egypt as a child, and so on. And so that Jesus sees his own situation against the history of Israel is the key to, under, uh, the key to understanding this text. Now, here quickly too, let me say a word about Jesus and temptation. The question sometimes asked whether Jesus' temptations could in any way be considered real temptations. After all, Jesus was divine and perfect and never had any real possibility of sinning, didn't he? Therefore, he didn't face temptation in the same way that we do. And there is a mystery here. The dynamics of Jesus and temptation, I do not fully know. But it's worth saying a few things quickly. First, that Jesus certainly felt the pull to do the thing tempted. Okay? If not, it could not be rightly called a temptation. And the book of Hebrews makes a point of saying that Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are yet was without sin. Second, that in some way Jesus knows the reality of temptation more, not less, than we do. 
I think it was C.S. Lewis who pointed out that only Jesus has actually borne up under the full weight of temptation, whereas we have all buckled under it at some point before its full pressure has been felt. Only Jesus has really felt the full force of temptation. And then third, if Jesus was somehow less inclined towards sin, it was not only because of his perfect divinity, but also because in a lifetime of perfect devotion to the will of God his Father, he had fortified himself against sin. It is possible for us to do things that weaken the force of temptation and the lure of sin in our lives. Okay? And conversely, we are also, by certain habits or the absence of certain disciplines, we can render ourselves more susceptible to temptation. But Jesus was stronger, not just by virtue of his perfect nature, but because of his lifetime of obedience to God, which had strengthened him. And now, having surrendered himself fully to the will of God in baptism and in his life to this point, that surrender is now going to be tested before Jesus launches into his public ministry. So with all of that in mind, now we can finally look at the temptations themselves. First, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, verse 1, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Now notice that the Holy Spirit of God leads Jesus into the wilderness where he will encounter temptation. Lest we think that when we are in the wilderness, it's because we've fallen out of step with God, Here we see that sometimes, at least, being in the wilderness means that maybe we are perfectly in step with God. Unless we think that God's leading for us is always into health and prosperity and ease, let us notice particularly that sometimes God leads us into difficulty. Reading through the scriptures with my boys at night, and we're in, uh, last night we read Acts chapter 16, where Paul and his companions, after trying to go into this part of the world and this country, always have their way blocked by the Spirit of God. And finally they sense in a dream that God is calling them to go to Macedonia. Very clear leading of God. Well, what happened as soon as they got there? They went to Philippi, where they were very quickly stripped and whipped and put in prison. Sometimes the very explicit leading of the Spirit of God is into very, very grave danger. And difficulty. And Jesus in the wilderness, verse 2, ate nothing during those days. And then I love this classic understatement. And when they were ended, he was hungry. I'll bet he was. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now he's not asking Jesus to prove that he's the son of God. Oh yeah, let me see you do something miraculous. I think he's asking Jesus to to use his divine power to take care of his own needs. My goodness, Jesus, you're the son of God. You don't need to be hungry. Why on earth do you not just make some food right now? You can, you know. It's a temptation for Jesus of both trust and obedience. Will Jesus trust God for his need? Or will he take matters into his own hands and do it himself? Will Jesus obey the spirit who has led him into the wilderness to fast? Or will he break his fast 
because he is hungry. How do we know that this is about trust and obedience? By Jesus' answer. Jesus answered him, verse 4, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. That quotation of Jesus comes from the book of Deuteronomy. And if you've got your Bibles, flip back and forth with me. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3. Moses is now rehearsing for Israel their time in the wilderness. This is near the end of the 40 years. Moses is reminding them of their history. In verse 3, he says to the Israelites, And he, that is God, humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. You'd never seen manna before. It's a brand new thing God did. That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Also, Exodus chapter 16, which is the the part of their history that Moses is referring to, 40 years before. This is before they even come to Mount Sinai. They're just out of Egypt. And the whole congregation of people, Exodus 16, verse 2, grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Challenging the motives of God. Obviously, because we have no food, God's design toward us must not be good. And Israel did not trust God, and many did not obey what God then said about the collecting of this manna, that the manna was going to fall every day, and they were to collect enough just for one day, trusting that there would be a fresh supply from God tomorrow. They neither trusted nor obeyed. In what do we trust with our own lives? What, what, do, we, what do we lean on for our satisfaction, for our provision, for our joy, for our security, for our future. Finances. Make sure we have a nest egg. Make sure we're planning for the future. Which on one hand is good stewardship, but on the other hand might be motivated by fear. And you have to look in your own heart to say whether your financial planning is a wisdom issue or a fear issue. I don't tithe, I don't give because I don't have enough. We as a church, what do we lean on and trust in for our future as a church? Our performance, our programs, our busyness, our finances. We trust that Jesus will build his church and if we fix our eyes and our lives upon him, his kingdom will come. Remember the other famous temptation of Scripture, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And Satan there said, you know, did God really say you can't eat anything? Eve said, well, no, um, but we can eat from this tree and we can't touch it. And Satan said, in essence, "You you can't trust God. He's looking out for his interests, not for yours. You know what? If you eat this, you'll actually become like God. And Adam and Eve had a choice to make. Okay, am I going to obey God's word, 
which was given to govern my, govern my life and my relationship with him? Am I going to trust the heart of God that he has my best interest in mind? Or do I need to take my own interest in hand? And we know what they did. They neither trusted nor obeyed. They disobeyed. They ate. And the story just went downhill for all of human history from then. Jesus trusted in God here. Only in God. Fully in God. You're the son of God. You're hungry. Why don't you just make food? Jesus says, it's, it's not bread that I need. I live by the very word of God. I live to do his will. I will trust him to look after my need. If I focus on him, the rest is just details. And he trusted and obeyed where God's people in the Old Testament had not. The second temptation in verse 5 through 7 of Luke chapter 4. Then the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you, Jesus, I will give all of this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus said to his disciples just before ascending to the Father, end of Matthew chapter 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Revelation chapter 11, speaking of the end of history, says the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. The question here is, does Jesus want to take a shortcut, bypass the cross, and receive all the authority in heaven and earth and the kingdoms of the earth without the path of suffering. If he will worship Satan, Satan says, I'll just give it to you directly. You go God's way and it's going to hurt. You don't need to hurt. Worship me and I will give it to you. It's a temptation to seek his own comfort first. Why suffer needlessly? You don't have to, Jesus. You're the son of God. Jesus' answer, verse 8, it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. I'm not going to worship you. I'm not going to bow down to you, Satan. It's written in the word of God to worship the Lord only, serve him only. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is where Jesus quotes this from. So the famous passage, we know this verse, chapter 6, verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And Moses is warning the people to keep that central. You're about to enter the promised land. And then he says this. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns of water that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve. And by his name, you shall swear. That's what Jesus is going back to. You shall not go after the other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. 
lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. The God of our age is the God of comfort. The God of our age tells us again, avoid suffering at all costs. Because again, suffering feels to us like it's a sign that we are out of the will of God. Many of you know what it is like to come from another country and to come to this country and to establish yourselves and to seek a new life, to build a better life for yourselves and for your children and grandchildren. And you had to trust God because many of you came here with very little, if not nothing at all. And you had to trust God. But, but how about now? How about now? Because most of us now live very comfortably and we have what we need. We live in a land of plenty that we did not make a rich and prosperous land, but we, we kind of came in partway through into a land that was healthy and rich and we share in its riches. And do we now forget the Lord our God? Are we, are we comfortable? Do we stop sensing our need for God? Please don't fall into the trap of thinking that a better life equals material security. There are a lot of people in the world who have gone from rags to riches only to discover that it was not a better life. Better life in Jesus' terms is in relationship to him. I've come that they might have life to the full, he said. Life is in me. Life is not in Canada or wealth or prosperity or comfort. And Jesus knew that there was more security in having God lead him to the cross than to have the kingdoms of the world in any other way. Where is your security? Is it in loving the Lord your God with all your heart? We sometimes sing, this is the air I breathe, your very presence living in me. Jesus would have understood that song. He would have understood that to love the Lord his God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength is far better than to have the kingdoms of the world and all the authority on earth granted to him apart from God at the center. That was the temptation. That was the temptation to choose the God of comfort over the God of the cross. And Satan tempts him a third time in which what I think is the most interesting of the three temptations. Luke 4 verse 9, And Satan took him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. What interests me about this Temptation is the fact that Satan is now quoting scripture. Jesus has now gone to the scripture two times. Now Satan does. And this one also fascinates me because of where the passage comes from. Psalm 91. Psalm 91. 
Verse 11, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Very next verse, you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. I wonder if Satan, he must have understood how close he was skirting to his own future with his text, reminding that the blessed child of God would trample the serpent, which is what Satan is about to do. Here also is one of the reasons why I think that this whole passage is not just about using the scripture. Just having a verse on self-control or lust or finances or child-rearing or guilt just to have it handy when the temptation comes. Because Satan also knows how to use the scripture and he can do it as well as anyone to attain his own ends. The scripture is not to be used. We don't just read the scripture to find things to apply to our lives. The scripture forms us. The scripture forms our faith. The scripture forms our character. And we are not to apply the scripture to our lives. We are to apply our lives to the scripture. And this particular temptation of Jesus has to do with obligating God. And how often have we done that? God is obligated to keep me healthy. And if I'm not, my faith gets shaken. God is obligated to grant me material prosperity or to preserve even my life or the life of someone close to me. And if tragedy strikes, my faith gets shaken. But again, Jesus' response, verse 12 of Luke 4, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Here again, we go to Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 16. Nope. Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. Same chapter as the other quotation. And Moses says to the people, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested him at Massa. So what is... Massa. Well, we have to back up again and go back to Exodus chapter 17. And here Israel is thirsty in the wilderness. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses. So Moses takes their complaints to God. God says, okay, gather the people together, strike the the rock, water will come out. And it happens, and it's just a miracle. Everyone has water from the rock. And then verse 7, and Moses called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? In other words, the absence of water was proof to the people that God was not among them. If God was among us, we would have water. We wouldn't be thirsty. You know, plagues in Egypt... The Red Sea, the pillar of fire and smoke, they couldn't even say, what has God done for us lately? God had done all kinds of extraordinary things for them lately. 
But still they said, because I'm thirsty now, is God among us or not? Where is he? And do we test God in the same way? I do. Things aren't going right now. Where is God? Why isn't God showing up in the way that he's supposed to show up? Psalm 91, which Jesus, or which uh, Satan quotes from, affirms God's care and provision for those who seek him with all their heart and live in obedience to him. And the psalm employs metaphor, saying, you know, you follow God, you won't even stub your toe. Like God will take such good care. So Satan takes that and says, okay, well, let's try that literally. Jump off the roof. God promised you that, didn't he, that angels would bury you up, you would just float to the ground. And by the way, wouldn't that score you some public points as a Messiah? And Jesus says, I'm not, I'm not going to put God to the test like that. God is not obligated to me if I take my life in my hands by doing that. It is 25 to 12. The truth is, I might be dead in an hour. Aneurysm, car accident. Would those close to me then say, is God here or not? Do we make our trust in God's reality or goodness or nearness contingent on whether or not he comes through for us? See, our culture is fond of thinking that God wants us to be prosperous and healthy Nonsense, and I think those who build their ministries around that need to read the New Testament and repent. God wants us to trust him and obey him. And if we give generously to God's kingdom and to the poor, the truth is, we might end up having to downsize our house. We might end up having to quit eating out. It might actually cost us. It might actually require sacrificial giving. Jesus said, I'm not going to put God to the test. I will trust and obey, and I will go about this whole Messiah thing as he leads me. No shortcuts to fame, no bypassing the cross. And so in three temptations, Jesus refused to set himself, his power, his desires, his comfort above his trust and his obedience to God. And he fulfilled perfectly Deuteronomy chapter 6, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, every moment of your life, in every thought, in every action, in every temptation, Jesus always obeyed and honored the Lord above all. Always. And Jesus did in these temptations and afterward continued to do what no one else has ever done. Not Adam, not Israel, not me, not you. He consistently kept God at the conscious center of his life. Now, I think that we do take something from this text about the scripture, and the truth is, we in our daily lives, we cannot face temptation successfully without a steady diet of God's word that forms us and shapes us. But that's not the real good news of this text. The real good news of this text, and we're about to have communion, so keep this in mind. The real good news of this text is that for all of those times when we have already fallen into temptation and into sin, Jesus has won the victory 
And that victory is applied to us. He really was the perfectly obedient son. He really did defeat Satan. He really is the acceptable sacrifice for our sin. He did not fail. And so our own forgiveness and acceptability to God, acceptability to God, really is secure. This text is not just about Jesus as our example about how to do battle with temptation. This text showcases Jesus, our champion, battling for us and winning. We're about to have communion. And here we celebrate not our own success in facing temptation in this last week or so, but we celebrate Jesus' perfect righteousness imputed to us. Please don't stay away this morning because you haven't prepared yourself. Participate because Jesus has saved you. It's about him. It's not about you. Our confidence is not in ourselves. Our focus is not on ourselves. Our confidence is in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Savior, who did live in perfect obedience to God, and then gave his perfect life as a perfect sacrifice so that his perfect righteousness might be applied to us. We, by faith in Christ, have forgiveness and are welcomed by God. It's not jeopardized by the fact that I faced temptation this week and fell. It is secure because Jesus faced temptation and did not fall. Jesus paid it all. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died. And on that basis, we come to communion and come before the very throne of God, confident of his acceptance. Jesus won for us his victory his obedience, his righteousness, in which we then, by the pure grace of God, get to share. That's what we celebrate this morning. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, we think upon your sacrifice. You became nothing, poured out to death. And we marvel at this saving grace. And again today, we find ourselves in that place where we marvel. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Thank you for your perfect life, your unflagging obedience to your Father. And thank you, Father, that by grace and love and mercy, you look at us and you see the righteousness of Christ. And so we come confident not in ourselves, but in you and your son and what he has done for us. We come to your table, gratefully and with worship. In his name, amen. Um, I, I think a rich and heavy text and communion is a, can be a somber, reflective time but when we have communion, whenever it's in the bulletin, do you notice how we put it? What do we do with communion? We celebrate communion. And we have a lot to celebrate. This is good news of great joy. So we are going to sing from our hymnals 
uh, wonderful, the, is that the right one? Am I doing this in the right order? Grace greater than our sin. I need a hymnal and a number. 